Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, the Deputy Editor at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. With our accents, you might think that you'd stumbled onto a podcast sponsored by Marks and Spencers, but it is so much more. <laughs> This is not just a third sector podcast. <laughs> it's, it's a brilliant charities podcast. How are you, Rebecca? I'm good. I'm good. What I've have you been, been doing today? I have been locked in the IOF convention at the Barbican, uh, oh. talking to brilliant people about fundraising. It's well, been very good. If you're going to be locked in anywhere, the Barbican's not a bad place to be in, is it? It's, uh, it's all right. But now we're here, under the ground. No natural daylight for us today. Um, <laughs> But, Rebecca, tell me what we're doing. Well, as you know, each month we're delving a little deeper into some of the conversations being had in our community, learning more about exciting innovations and probing some of the issues we're facing. It's very important. I mean, later I will be talking to digital communications consultant Kirsty Marins about how to handle your social media communications at a time of crisis. And we'll also be hearing about the newly revamped Code of Fundraising Practice from Priya Warner at the Fundraising Regulator. I'm excited. Yeah. But first, I want to talk about charity shops. I love charity shops. I love charity shops charity shops what's the best thing you've ever bought in a charity shop um probably most of my clothes i stand <laughs> before you dressed mostly in, in charity good. shop today good for the environment yeah yeah probably best thing uh a typewriter for my wedding i have questions my first question is what what was the role of the typewriter in your wedding so i, I went down the pinterest wormhole uh, mm, which you can do yeah. when you're getting married so basically this was to put the table plan on so people have like just click, you know people that. have different ideas people have an easel or something and I just because my husband and I are both journalists right. so kind of it, was a, it wasn't it was a journalist themed wedding but it had a couple of nods no, and one I of them was that. I had my heart set on a typewriter for it and I, and like, I was looking on, on eBay and they were so expensive and my mum happened to be passing one and it had one for about 30 quid and That's she was just fantastic. like passing a charity shop and just in the window is this typewriter for 30 quid. This is, I'm just kind of like inject this into my veins because <laughs> I am also, I'm getting married next year. Woo! Hooray! Um, and something that I had no idea of, which was that you can, um, actually Oxfam has a wedding dress shop. Yeah. Um, and you can look online and I would encourage everyone, if you need a good laugh, just to just to do it because there are some just extraordinary dresses on there. And I've got, I've got a mate who actually bought her wedding dress from the Oxfam oh, shop. So I thought, oh let's go and have a look and there is everything you want bustles they've got bustles they've got crinolines they've got these vintage kind of 1970s laura ashley frills for days the kind of meringue shoulders the meringues everything very labyrinth anyway i'm getting off topic this is not a podcast about our wedding so tell me more about charity shops so the charity retail association estimates that there's about 11,200 charity shops in the uk and they fill around 4% of high street retail units. But over the last few years, there's been a drop in numbers. So in 2017, more charity shops closed than pubs. Do you know what? That doesn't surprise me because we need pubs at the moment. It's, yeah, you know, everyone needs a drink. Everyone needs a drink right now. But charity shops aren't universally popular. Uh, some people see them as a symbol of decline on the high street. And the recent Charity Commission report following its inquiry into Oxfam also found that beside the more widely publicised concerns about safeguarding abroad, there were issues about Oxfam's chain of shops in the UK. The inquiry found that there were potential safeguarding risks in having young and vulnerable volunteers working alongside volunteers who were transitioning from prison, say. So what is causing the number of charity shops to fall and how can we promote them to the public? And how should charities address the risks surrounding volunteers in their shops? I'm going to speak to Jason Lomas, Head of Portfolio Development at the disability equality charity Scope, Rena Mukherjee, Director of the London-based employment and training charity, the Octavia Foundation, and Robin Osterley, Chief Executive of the Charity Retail Association.
thank you all for joining us. So, uh, Rena and Jason, what value do charity shops bring to your organisations, would you say? So, first of all, the value that they bring is absolutely immense. They help raise funds for our community work, which is really important. They help us engage with our local communities. And as we're based in London and we support Londoners, that's absolutely vitally important as well. I think they really contribute towards the recycling and reuse and sustainability agenda, which is so important in this era of overconsumption. And they raise awareness of our organisation and our overall brand. So really important. Okay, so it is about more than just the funds. Definitely more than just the funds. They also provide masses of opportunities for volunteers as well. Lots of people who volunteered in our charity shops have gone on to get jobs some with us, some in other organisations as well, and some just love volunteering and continue to volunteer. From, from Scope's perspective, 67% of contacts through our retail estate. So with that in mind, we, you know, we've got a great vehicle there for one to drive the connection to cause and using sort of great marketing, great literature and some really good staff training. It really works well as a nice blend. And our stores just act as a buffer out there for the public and we can signpost people to the right places where they need it. And you find when you've got that right as well, when you've got that connectivity right, you find that your stock and donations start to rise and you start, start to find you get more volunteers as well. Now, that's interesting because we did a bit of a thing where we were vox popping in my sort of in, in the areas where we grew up last year. We were speaking to people about their perceptions of charity. And in my parents' virgin in Somerset, I sort of said, what charities do you support? And the two that came up were the RSPCA and the local hospice. And guess mm. which two? have charity shops on the high street like it was robin does that tally with what you see from members of the cra sure absolutely so you just heard from two of our um, nearly 400 members so across those 400 members there are something in the region of 9,000 charity shops and they raise upwards of just shy of 300 million pounds a year for their good causes that's contribution. That's not. That's not income. That's actual profit that the shops make and are able to, you know, underpin the activities of the good causes that that own those shops. But it isn't just about making money. And you know, if any message comes across from this session, it really ought to be that they're more than a shop. They are places where people gather, where volunteers go to learn skills, where the community can focus on for that particular charity where, as Jason said, that it can actually be a portal to the charity's services. We quite often quote the example of Bernardo's, for example, who have, on average, they've got uh, over 700 shops, but on average they get one person a month, a young person, come into their shops saying something like, you know, my parents have just thrown me out, or I've got nowhere to live, or parents are beating me up. You know, So they're a- absolutely a safe space on the high street where, where people can go to access those services. So, yeah, a really, really important part of the, of the community scene as well as the fundraising scene. The most recent local data company Retail and Leisure Trends report found that the number of charity shops in Great Britain fell by 119 in the first six months of 2018. So what's causing this decline? I think over the years there's been a really aggressive expansion in charity shops. And I, I believe there's a, a levelling off where oh, charities okay. are, are focusing a little bit differently. You know, many charities now are, are focusing on more larger format stores that are more regional area centric and that give flexibility and space just to try new things as a charity as well. At the scope, you know, what, what we've looked at is we've We've looked at going into a bigger space. We've done a couple of stores. And we've been revisiting our retail estate, so closing non-profitable stores, refitting stores, space grabbing where we can, 
give more sales floor space. And we're also rolling out a new brand initiative that's it's an ongoing rebranding throughout all our stores as well. So I think, contrary to popular belief, we do actually pay competitive rents on the high street and mm. we work in London and our flagship store is on Brompton Road, which is just down the road from Harrods. And so we're in the market with lots and lots of other high-end retailers in terms of competing for stores. So profitability and the bottom line is really important for us. Upwards-only rent reviews are a really big problem for charity shops and for all retailers. And it's not just charity shops, I think, that are affected by high rent that landlords charge. We've seen a number of large commercial retailers, the Arcadia Group being one such example that very recently renegotiated with its landlords and suggested that they reduce the rent so that the stores could remain in business. So those are some of the things that that affect us and I think that contribute to the decline in charity shops on the high street because like all other retailers, we need to look at whether or not a shop is profitable, as Jason said, and whether or not we can we can make it work. So we've got rents, we've got kind of levelling off and sort of rebalancing the market. Is there anything else you're seeing, Robin, at, at the Charity Retail Association? Well, the first thing I ought to say really is that I'm, I'm not sure that we would necessarily reflect the figures that you quoted in, in our research, actually. Okay. Um, I think it slightly depends which 110 you, shops you pick. So I think, I think this was a net, it was a net loss yeah, overall, that figure. Yeah. It's not the number that's closed. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. But we have some incredibly accurate stats on, on shops and w- we certainly wouldn't want to quote a decline of 110. But having said that, conditions are tough on the high street, that's for sure. But the response to that rather, well, I suppose the response to that for some charities is is indeed to close shops but generally speaking it's so that they can make their other shops work harder and make them more profitable and I think there's a little bit of weeding out of shops that aren't as successful and and aren't as profitable for you know for obvious reasons which which everyone can understand the only other factor I think that might be in play here if indeed there is a decline might be a shortage of volunteers because there is no doubt that this is the biggest issue that faces the sector and 95% of our members would quote that they have increasing problems with finding enough suitable volunteers. And occasionally, you know, if they do have to shut shops, at least for you know a day at a time or something like that, because of a shortage of volunteers. I'm certainly not in any way gloomy about the future of the sector uh, in terms of the number of shops that are out there. I think what we're having is a bit of a rebalancing, a bit of a consolidation rather than any kind of decline. I would not yep. want to use the word decline. Okay, so it's a, it's a more rosy <laughs> situation than some figures would suggest. Yeah, I mean, a, a, a raw figure of shops disguises all sorts of things. How profitable are those shops? How big are those shops? You know, how, what's the square footage? Mm-hmm. It's a nice headline, but there's a lot underneath that which needs not to be ignored. There's also tremendous variety in shops as well. So mm-hmm. there's very large yep. stores, furniture stores, yep. almost charity superstores, and there's very, very small shops as well. There's pop-up shops and there's permanent shops as well. So there's a massive variety of shops. I don't know if, of that figure that you quoted if all of those were permanent shops, mm. but we have, for example, several pop-up shops and we can go in there within 48 hours and get out of there at 48 hours and we've had a number of permanent shops that started off as pop-up shops as well so I think that it's a bit of a dangerous stat the 118 closing because I don't think that presents the picture of the diversity of the sector or the health of the sector or what organisations are doing that are nimble and agile to continue to raise money for their charities. What do you think the public's attitude to charity shops is? I personally adore charity shops so but yeah what do you think the wider public's idea is? 
I think it's mixed. I mean, we, we've just opened a, a new shop in Kentish Town Road, which is a beautiful building. It's a, it's a lovely building that's been loved by the community for many years. It was a former dress shop and it fell into disrepair. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's got beautiful windows. It's got a vintage offer. And the community, when we opened the charity shop, absolutely loved it because they felt that it was coming back into use and they really wanted it to be there. We've kept the original design. We've, we've kept all the original features. And it's really doing well. So I think that it's really mixed. I think where you can engage with the community, where you can provide something that's really wanted, then you can get a really positive response. But then on the other hand, if, it, if your shop looks a bit tatty, if it's looking a bit unloved, perhaps people can be a bit concerned about that. And I do think that there is a lot of scaremongering out there that the high streets are being ruined by too many charity shops. But for a lot of people, they do provide an opportunity to buy clothes at prices that they can afford. And we have some shops for whom, you know, that is a real choice that people need to make. I think, I think what we're finding as well is uh, we find a different clientele that, that comes across the threshold now. And mm-hmm. it's a bit of a sea change in, in many respects. And I think sometimes it's about the freshness that a charity shop brings because, we, you know, in a small store you can replace 150 units a day. And in one of our large stores you can replace 500 units a day. Mm-hmm. And you have that shopper that continually comes in to look for, you know, those, mm-hmm. those great lines. There's some wonderful pieces uh, out there in charity shops. And, and you find that. And for me, I think the disposable fashion side of things now is... Um, become a little bit more of a pariah than uh, out there and and now I think you know with charity and the reuse and, and vintage lines and becoming more of a darling of, of the consumer to be truthful. Robin what sense do you get? I'll just throw a stat at you because I think this is really interesting mm. so in 2018 there was only one month in which charity retail did not show profitable growth and in 2018 there was only one month when commercial retail did show profitable oh, growth I think that says as much as you need to say, really, about the public's attitude to to charity shops. Some people need to shop in charity shops. A heck of a lot of people like to shop in Mm. charity shops. And not only that, if they don't shop in charity shops, there's a very, very good chance they will be donating to charity shops. So I think our stats say something in the region. Two-thirds of the the public have at some point ventured into a charity shop to donate, and probably about half have ventured into a charity shop to buy. There is a great deal of popularity from the public. Um, The concern about the sort of decline of the high street and so on and so on, uh, it, it doesn't feel to me like charity shops are a cause of that by any stretch of the imagination. And very rarely are they a sign of that. And we, we quite often quote the example of, of Margate, which had the highest rate of shop closures in the country in 2008. And it was only the charity shops that stayed there. Now, I don't know if any of any of your listeners have been to Margate recently, but that, you know, that is a place that is absolutely on the up and up. There's just been a new art gallery opened there. You know, it's become incredibly trendy. I gather it's known as Shoreditch on Sea. And this is because the charity shops hung in there and were able to provide an offer which, which the citizens of Margate appreciated and diversified and became more interesting. And gradually Margate became a shopping destination which other people moved into. And that's an example of how, of, you know, how the public has taken in lots of locations to charity shops. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, a few years ago, there was kind of a move towards these kind of more boutique shops, the sort of Mary's Living and Giving by Save the Children with Mary Portis and the kind of the hybrid shops, which I know Scope is doing quite a lot of selling new and old items together. Like, what impact would you guys say they've had? I'll start with the hybrid shops. We ventured into two. We've done two big space, one in Northampton, about 13,000 square foot we took, and one in Doncaster. 
about 14,000 square feet. I think for us and our thought process was let's, let's create a community type hub, big space, be able to showcase what we do, be it ladies fashion clothing or, or clothing itself, but have a nice big electrical, furniture electrical offer. And and, and what we did was we, we, we looked at accessibility for cars, getting their bus routes, all that sort of thing, and make it easy to shop. We made it dead easy to, to donate as well for the consumers. So all on one level, you can donate at the back door or through the doors at the front. We've got a nice donation station there. And we, and we laid it out very well. I think our main thought process was around accessibility, being a disability charity. You know, we wanted to make sure we didn't exclude anybody. We've got great walkways in there, you know, and everybody can shop every part of it. And the Purple Pound is worth £250 billion a year. You know, so it'd be remiss of us not to have a, an accessible shopping arena for, for, for disabled people. Rina, you mentioned about the Octavia Foundation's kind of more vintage feel shop and, and things like that. So is it having an impact for you guys? Well, I mean, we operate some boutique stores. Our flagship store is on Brompton Road, just down the road from Harrods. And, and we have a boutique, designer boutique there. And we get some absolutely amazing donations. And I think we owe it to both the donor and also to our charity to try and raise as much money from those fabulous donations nations as we possibly can so for us in our locations and in some of our locations those boutique formats really do work for us having said that it is very hard work getting those high quality donations there are lots and lots of calls on other people's donations such as um, ebay dress agencies and so it is getting much harder to to, to get those really high quality donations and, and we do definitely need them On the other end of the scale, we do have some value offer shops as well. So down in Tooting, for example, we've got, you know, £2 rails and £5 rails. And that shop is really, really busy. It's one of the more most successful shops. And it really provides a service for the local community who go there to to shop for, you know, essential, you know, clothing. And so I think both of those formats within, we're a very small chain. We've got 20 charity shops. So both of those formats work really well for us. So it's horses for courses, depending on where you are and what the right environment is. I think this is exemplifying really what we were talking about earlier about shops being kind of cuter uh, about doing their doing their work and making sure that the kind of shopping environment that they're, that they're offering is particularly suited to the community in, in which they're located. And I think what we're actually seeing is a really interesting sort of almost mainstreaming of charity shops to, to, to the extent now that they are actually taking a, you know, a really major important part in new shopping developments. So we've got a great example of this recently opened in, in um, Coldrops Yard in King's Cross, which is an extremely fancy high-end retail development. And Shelter went along to the developers and said, what you need to increase your community credentials and your ability to attract different types of people into this area is you need a fancy charity shop. And what we're seeing in there is an abs- you know, is a shop that absolutely fits into that really swish development, but is absolutely a charity shop and gives Shelter the opportunity not only to make money out of it, but also, as, as Jason was saying earlier, to show the connection to cause in the shop itself. So they've got a big freeze talking about all the kind of work that they do with, the home, with homeless people and with disadvantaged people in a variety of different ways. And yet it's right there in, the, in a fancy development. Rena, you mentioned volunteering earlier, and um, one of the kind of less commented on aspects of the Charity Commission's recent inquiry report into Oxfam was concerns that have been raised around safeguarding of volunteers in charity shops. How reliant are your shops on volunteers, and what are the challenges around this area of safeguarding, and, and how should charities be tackling them? 
we do rely on volunteers and we appreciate um, our volunteers immensely. But all our shops are run by paid staff. They all have a paid manager. And some of the larger shops have got an assistant manager as well. So volunteers provide that additional support that we really need. And we take safeguarding really, really seriously. It's a really important issue as a charity that supports vulnerable people. We've got a very active safeguarding policy. We've just reviewed it in line with the Charity Commission's guidelines. And I think for organisations, you're never going to eliminate all the awful stuff that, that happens, but you can do your hardest to do so by having a really good policy, by having good procedures, by creating the culture within the organisation through training and support for staff and volunteers and really if there are any safeguarding concerns in acting on them as soon as as soon as you can and not brushing them under the carpet so I think all those things I know that that we do through our policies and procedures and so being able to grow and support our volunteer team is something that's really important to us it's massive support for us and also a vital connection to the community but making sure that everybody is safe is in our interest because our business is a charity as people and we need to make sure that people are treated well and they're treated safely and they're looked after properly. And Robin, what would be the kind of best practice that you would look for from your members on mm. this area? I will answer that, but just, just to complete the picture on volunteering, mm. there's around 230,000 volunteers mm. in the sector, which, which makes it the lar- largest single body of volunteers in the country. So for comparison, I usually use the Scouts, that's around 180,000 volunteers, mm. 230,000 in mm. charity retail. So clearly... You know, volunteering is the lifeblood of what we do. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do what we do without without the volunteers. That's absolutely clear. So it is clearly crucially important that we keep them and staff and customers and anyone else who comes into the shop as safe as, it, as it's possible to be. Uh, it is clearly absolutely crucial that we all take a kind of zero tolerance approach on this, which which we all do. There are a variety of different safeguarding practices. The most important areas of safeguarding are actually probably at the beginning. There's, so there's probably two really critical areas. One is in recruitment and reference taking. The second thing is about induction and, and monitoring. So you're training those people properly according to an existing safeguarding code of conduct. Uh, which has been approved and understood by trustees. You're making sure that uh, they understand that safeguarding code of conduct and you're monitoring their practice throughout the course of the year to ensure that, the, that they're following it. And then, of course, the third um, uh, you know, thing is to have a, an effective uh, whistleblowing procedure so that uh, people can report in knowing that their reporting is being done in full confidence and, most importantly, that something will be done about it. And if you get those three elements absolutely right, then safeguarding becomes uh, a supporting activity rather than a threatening one. And that's uh, what we tend to advise our members and help them with where necessary. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a really interesting discussion. Thank you. Thank you. So last month, the NSPCC got into a big social media row over its decision to ditch the transgender activist Munro Bergdorf as an ambassador for its child line. This was partly prompted by online criticism of the decision to appoint her in the first place, but the whole thing just became a big furore. It did have an impact on the charity at the end of the day. So I'm here with digital communications consultant and third sector columnist Kirsty Marins to find out how charities should be using their social media in times of crisis and also how they can look out for the well-being of the digital staff who are on the front line when these uh, media storms occur. 
So, Kirsty, I mean, we've both written quite a bit about the NSPCC. I know it's something that we were following quite closely at the time. And I think that you made really interesting points in your blog for us about the fact that people weren't thinking about the staff who were having to kind of police that account. So as far as you're concerned, when you're faced with a communications crisis in a charity, how much of a priority should that social media output be? In this instance, the crisis happened on social media. So in that way, social media has to be a priority. What I would say, though, is the first thing to do is actually assess if it is a crisis in the first place. Mm. So if you look back on it, there's a really interesting Twitter thread by someone who dug into it. And the Safe School Alliance had only set up that Twitter account one day before. Mm. And they had, you know, only a couple of hundred Twitter followers when they started tweeting NSPCC. And obviously, we had the Times journalist as well. Yes. But I do think if, you know, NSPCC had been able to take a more measured approach and had had time to really investigate a bit more whether that would have been such a knee-jerk reaction because mm. I think they could have potentially avoided the crisis on social media altogether. Yeah, and that's a big problem, isn't it? Because in, in the world of kind of instant technology, it happens so fast. You kind of talk about this idea of measured responses, but things happen at lightning speed there and, and, and they can unravel and get out of hand. So I think obviously having a proactive plan in place is, is a big part of that. But how else do you think that charities should respond if they feel like there is a backlash that is happening that involves them online? Well, I think they have to be transparent and they have Mm. to be authentic in their response. I think the problem is, you know, obviously, as you say, the pace at which this happens and the volume of tweets that the charity is receiving, it's really difficult to give sort of individual responses. So what ends up happening is almost like a copy and paste response. Yeah. And what (laughs) happens is people see that and that gets them riled up even more. Mm. But we have to remember there's only so much that you can do. You know, the social media team, they don't have the authority to really probably go beyond that statement. And I think also what's important to remember is people are just doing their jobs. Sometimes they may not agree with the statement that's gone out. And I think that's one of the issues also with their mental health is they have to do their job. They have to respond in the way that they've been told, but it might not be something that they agree with personally. And, you know, keyboard warriors, they're angry, they're not really thinking that there's somebody behind that account. And they sometimes are using really abusive language. And that's, again, something that people might internalise. And whilst they probably know better not to take it personally, when you're in that situation, it's hard not to. And I think that's also one of the issues is going home with all of that weight, kind of not being able to like disassociate yourself from that or kind of just switch off because Mm. social media is so constant. Um, We have evidence that there were staff who very much did disagree with the decisions that were being made by the NSPCC board and the trustees because we have that letter that was written by 150 members of staff which came out and they said, you know, we we really are not okay with the way that this was handled. And um, I think a lot of the time it's that 
you know, the people who manage the social media accounts will not be equipped. It's almost impossible to be equipped for something like this. You can have, you know, if you're a big corporation, you might have PR and people who are equipped with that sort of thing, but they don't. And and you talked about then the difficulty of having, you know, disassociating from that when you go home at the end of the day. Obviously, it's constant. Yes. You know, it's a very hard, you can turn your phone off and that sort of thing, but you'll always have the sense that it's just, it's just going on. What do you think is the kind of mental health impact that this could have on someone who was in charge of monitoring one of those accounts? Well, I mean, we know that the NSPCC has offered counselling to their staff. And I think that's a really, really good positive step. And I think it's probably something I, I would hope that, you know, the people monitoring those Twitter accounts or Instagram, Facebook would actually take advantage of. I think when you're in the moment, you you kind of probably have to let it pass, if that makes sense, before you can have that kind of real counselling session. But I think what is important is in the moment to have regular breaks, to have enough staff so that it's not one or two people having to deal with all of that. Mm. So whether you bring in staff from other departments or whether you bring in external helps, you get an agency, there are agencies that specialise in moderation, or you bring in a couple of freelancers or whatever it is to kind of spread the load so that it's not, you know, hours and hours and hours of someone having to look through these awful negative messages and having to deal with it. So that's one way that they could do it. And then also, I think just being able to talk about it. So having a culture, I guess, at the charity where it's okay to be honest and open. Mm. And and if something's really upsetting you to be able to say that without fear of being, you know, maybe made like to feel like, well, that's your just your job, just, you know, get on with it, deal with it, it'll pass. And I mean, the NSPCC obviously has a helpline they you know they deal with this sort of thing with you know they should have people trained to help their staff not every charity has that though unfortunately so and you'd mentioned authenticity there i think that's really important there's a big kind of thing around brand building online and having these like personalities around social media and a lot of the time especially with big corporations they can be quite snarky i would almost say online you get especially people like wendy's in america you can get these extraordinary clapbacks from these accounts which have you know hundreds of thousands of followers and a lot of the time that can be very popular but i imagine if it's misplaced it can go quite badly wrong yes (laughs) if you're a charity and you're considering kind of building that online brand how do you judge when you can kind of trust your social media team to sort of manage a situation like that It's an amazing question, one that I don't think is that easy to answer, just because charities are very risk averse. Mm. And I just don't think you'll ever have a charity. There are a few that are quite like outspoken, mainly campaigning charities like Amnesty. You know, they've had quite a few digs at, you know, President Trump, for example. But in the main, most charities are going to be quite what I call vanilla in their kind of social media approach, you know, never wanting to step on anyone's toes or kind of ruffle feathers. But there are situations where it has worked really well. And one of them is the NHS Blood and Transplant Twitter account, which back in 2017, they did basically a Twitter thread because they had been asking for more black blood donors. And people were kind of saying, oh, hang on a minute, you know, isn't our blood all the same? Aren't you racist? And they did this whole thread, which is still their pinned tweet. So go have a look. Yeah. Basically, they misbusted, right. should I say, uh, what people thought. And mm. it was really, really good. And, you know, quite different from what they would normally do, if that makes sense. Yeah. But they felt so strongly about it that they did take a chance. Mm. 
And I know that Melissa Thermidor, the social media manager, she spoke last year, I think it was, at um, IOF convention. And she actually said she didn't get permission to do it. She just went and did it. And then afterwards, she was like, oh, my goodness, am I going to get into trouble for this? But I think the way it was done, she obviously knows the audience. You know, every day she's listening to them. You know, she's replying to them. She's engaging with them. She's having conversations with them. So she probably knows where she can go, like what kind of tone she can take, how far she can push it. And I think when you're not there every day, you don't get to see that. So, you know, to trust your social media manager sounds like a big thing to do because you're not there seeing them talking to people every day and knowing what your audience is like on that channel. So know your audience, you know, have a trusting relationship with your managers, but also have a clear contingency plan if you have a crisis in place and be ready to offer the emotional support to your staff who then have to deal with that fallout. Absolutely. Wonderful. Kirsty, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure, no problem. Thank you for having me. Last year, the fundraising regulator carried out the first overhaul of the Code of Fundraising Practice since it took over responsibility for the Code from the Institute of Fundraising in 2016. It published the final version of the new Code in June. I caught up with Priya Warner, the fundraising regulator's head of policy at the IOF's annual convention, to find out what's changed. Okay, so the current Code of Fundraising Practice has 20 sections. In addition to that, fundraisers and organisations need to be aware of the rules in the rule books and there are then the legal appendices. So in order to know what's expected um, in terms of standards, individuals need to go to all three of those different documents and navigate their way around them. I think we heard from feedback in previous consultations and through conversations and events that there was a bit of work for us to do to make the document more accessible. And we wanted to think about the audience, and the audience is, of course, the sector, fundraisers, trustees and others, but also members of the public. And so what we've done is bring together the code, the rule books and the legal appendices into one document. And the Code of Fundraising Practice that we've published sets out all of the standards in one place, and we've worked a lot to make that more navigable and easy to understand. So how has it changed from the draft version that was published in September to the kind of the, the final published version that's just come out? So I think it's worth saying in terms of the code of fundraising practice that we've published, a lot is similar to what we consulted on, but we have also taken on board the feedback. So for example, the introduction is much shorter given the feedback we received. We had consulted on a structure that we had feedback about, which said actually you could make that structure even simpler. We've done that. We've continued to work with plain English, so some of the language has become even more accessible than it was in the draft we consulted on. So in that way, we've made a number of changes. But going back to the principle of the consultation, we were focusing on accessibility rather than fundamentally changing the standards, unless there were areas of conflict or perhaps where there was lots of duplication. And what's the reaction been so far? Obviously, you've been explaining it to people today as part of the IOF convention. Yeah, what's people's reaction been? I think it's been broadly positive. Um, I think people have welcomed the approach we've taken. I think understanding why we've made the changes that we have. So yeah, broadly positive. But in response to the consultation uh, on the draft version, there were kind of a minority of people who felt that accessibility wasn't actually the most pressing issue and, th- and they felt that there should be a review of kind of the substance of the standards in the code. Is that something the regulator's planning to do? So I think it's important when we set standards that we always keep those under review. We need to balance that at this moment with also understanding that fundraisers will be wanting to familiarise themselves with these changes in the new structure. 
So I think for now, our intention is to support the sector, to understand what we've changed, why we've changed it, and to support them as they familiarise themselves with the new code. But in the future, we will look at which areas of the code we need to change. Okay, I want to thank you very much for speaking to us. Thanks. We'll be back with another episode next month, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Thank you again to Jason Lomas, Robin Osterley, Rena Mukherjee, Kirsty Marins and Priya Warner for joining us, to the producer Anushka Tate for Rethink Audio, and to you for listening. <laughs>